This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. The Quill Podcast Awards were just recently launched and they are listener-nominated awards. The link is in my show notes, and I would be so appreciative if people took three minutes and nominated this podcast in the society and culture category. Today, I am interviewing Genevieve Graham about Letters Across the Sea. Genevieve is the number one best-selling author of The Forgotten Home Child, Letters Across the Sea, Tides of Honor, Promises to Keep, Come From Away, and At the Mountain's Edge. She is passionate about breathing life back into Canadian history through tales of love and adventure. She lives in Halifax, Nova Scotia. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Welcome, Genevieve. How are you today? I'm great, Cindy. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. Well, I'm excited to talk about Letters Across the Sea, and I understand it was an instant number one bestseller across Canada. That's so exciting. Yes, it was. That was a great announcement to read yesterday. I bet so. It's got to be nice when you hear that kind of news about a book when it's just come out, and especially in the midst of a pandemic. Yes, definitely. This is the second time it's happened to me. This The timing of the shutdowns and lockdowns happened exactly the same time last year for my last book. Oh my gosh. Well, I know. It's just crazy how the pandemic has impacted, I mean, every business, but it's interesting just because I pay attention to it in the publishing world, but how much it's impacted everything. So to have your book continuing to rise above a bunch of others is quite a feat. It is. It's very gratifying. It's wonderful to see. Well, why don't we start out with you telling me a little bit about Letters Across the Sea? Sure. Well, Cindy, I am a historical fiction author, as you know, but I also specialize in Canadian history. Since I'm up here in Halifax, and and I haven't read all that many historical fiction novels that are set here in Canada, so I started looking into, you know, the stories of our past that we are sort of forgetting about. And when I read about the largest ethnic riot in Canadian history, which happened in 1933 in Toronto, I thought, well, there's something that I bet we don't know anything about, especially since it was, it came from an overwhelming tide of anti-Semitism in what was called Toronto the Good at the time. That was back in the Great Depression. My story starts talking with about a family called the Ryans. Molly Ryan is the main character, and her father is a Protestant policeman. So her family is in the Irish part, the Irish Protestant part of the population of Toronto, which was very dominant. And across the street is Max Dreyfus and Hannah Dreyfus. They're brother and sister, and they are Jewish. And their father is a he's a successful businessman in the fashion district of Toronto. So they were they've been best friends forever. But as we get into the early 1930s and after Hitler has become chancellor and then put in an enabling act, which will put him in charge of all of the media, uh, things start to get tougher for the Jewish population in Toronto. And the anti-Semitism rises to the point where there are signs in stores that say, help wanted, Jews need not apply. And there were gangs wandering the street called swastika clubs who were causing trouble with the Jewish people and, and causing fights and 
And then the Jewish people had their own groups that were coming up against them. And everything got very heated. And it all exploded one night, August 1933, at a baseball game where there were thousands of people watching. Of course, it was the Depression, so everybody's looking for free entertainment. And at the there were two two uh, teams playing. One of them was called St. Stephen's, and they were a Protestant team. And the other one was called Harvard Playground, and they were a mostly Jewish team. So they both had equal amounts of people in the stands that were cheering for them. Uh, but at the end of the game, somebody unfurled a giant banner with a swastika in the middle of it, which basically lit the last straw and the crowd went wild. The, the players jumped over their benches with their bats and people in the crowd had actually come prepared with sawed off iron pipes and bricks and other dangerous weapons, basically. They'd come prepared and it ended up being a four hour brawl of over 10,000 people in downtown Toronto, which is a pretty major thing in Toronto history that we never even think about. Um, and we definitely never talk about the anti-Semitism because we're such a melting point, melting uh, pot up here that we sort of, I, I don't think we'd ever really think about it being exactly that dangerous, but it all ignited that night. Molly Ryan and Max Dreyfus were caught up in the middle of it. And something that happened at the riot tore their families apart and the two were separated, which was tough because they were just starting out on, well, they were trying out a love story. Um, being from different cultures, it probably was doomed from the start, but they were very interested in each other. And at the riot, they were torn apart. Fast forward a few years, Max has gone to war, but I love reading about and studying Canadian military for change because most of what I learned, just like with historical fiction, is European or British or American and not so much about Canadians. And the Canadians were always there. We've always been part of these conflicts and sort of a quiet but very strong arm of the military. So um, what I wanted to do in this one was write about a part of Canadian military history of which I knew nothing, which was in the Pacific Theater. I didn't know if there was anything, so I started looking into it, and that's when I discovered about the Battle of Hong Kong. So in 1941, Max and his friends were shipped down to Hong Kong as on garrison duty, which is not combat duty, but it's garrison, so protecting, defending the colony of Hong Kong, because the British forces in Hong Kong were split. They had to send so many of their men off to war in Europe that they needed reinforcements. So they sent down 1,985 Canadian men to stand guard over this. And they were told, don't worry about it. The Japanese are not coming. They've been fighting in China for since 1937. So for four years, they've been fighting. They're tired. They're worn out. There's nobody there. And really, they, they don't have any fighting skills, the Japanese. That's what our Canadian men were told. But of course, on December 7th, the Japanese declared their full intent to be in the war. They bombed Pearl Harbor, then they went to Manila, and then they went to Hong Kong. And as they attacked the Canadians, and there were also some Indian troops, they pushed them through the island of Hong Kong where the men fought for three weeks. It was interesting to note that because they were on garrison duty and not combat duty, they were underarmed, they were undertrained, they were actually declared unfit for battle before they were sent, and yet they were still sent. And they didn't come up against just a few tired Japanese soldiers. They came up against over 50,000 hardened Japanese warriors under the Bushido Code. So they were, they were just vastly outnumbered and outmanned, and they had no reinforcements. They had nothing. The Japanese cut off their water supply as they fought. 
it was just a, everything about the battle was brutal and they were starving for these three weeks. And it all culminated on Christmas Day, 1941, where they called the last stand of the Canadians, which was a battle where the, eventually the, it was the Brits that surrendered, not the Canadians. The Canadians are very, very proud to say we didn't surrender, but the Brits did. And during the um, entire battle, there were about 260 men that were killed. But this was the only battle in World War II history that was declared 100% a failure because if they weren't killed, they were put in Japanese POW camps for the next three years and 10 months, which was maybe in some cases a fate worse than death. They were subjected, to, because the Japanese had never signed the Geneva Convention, the POWs were subjected to slave labor, starvation. They would see their friends beheaded in front of them. They never received the Red Cross packages that were sent. Their families didn't know where they were. It was just one thing after another for this entire time. And eventually, after 1945, and the U.S. troops came by and dropped them enough food and got them healthy enough to bring them home, they landed in Canada and were basically forgotten. Um, they were sent there under false pretenses. They were sent. They sh never should have been sent. One of the things I read from one of the vets was that they were lambs sent to the slaughter. So they were really never recognized, and they sort of faded into oblivion. And I love to bring these things to, to light, these facts that we should know. And the saddest part was that when they came home, they went unrecognized. They were basically went under the radar. No one paid any attention to them at all. In fact, 1952, Canada legally absolved Japan of any financial responsibility, and nobody apologized to the POWs till 2011. It was just a a terrible thing that happened to bring these men back. Of course, they, they went under their, everything else that was happening around them with the atomic bombs going off and the tens of thousands of people coming back from Europe. And of course, the discovery of the death camps, all these things were happening. And somehow these, these men returned home and were just not recognized. So I like to really bring up these stories about parts of Canadian history that we don't talk about and probably we don't know about. Uh, we're not taught about things like this. And I, I think it's really important that these men be recognized. There's only five of them still alive today. And um, I know it's important to both them and their descendants that Canada finally learn their story. That's amazing that there are five of them still alive today. Oh, and I have the neatest story about that because as soon as I had finished writing it, I was speaking to my future son-in-law and he actually is in the Navy here. And I told him what I was writing about. And he goes, oh, oh, Hong Kong. My great uncle used to tell me that, about that all the time because he was there. And he told me that he was always very slender. And so he didn't have trouble with the starvation part like some of the bigger guys did. And I said, he was there? And he goes, oh, yeah, he could probably tell you some more stuff about it. He's still alive. I couldn't wow. believe it. I know. What are the odds? Oh, it was amazing. We did actually, he and I actually did email back and forth a couple of times. And he's 98 years old. and still loves to help educate. So it was, it was wonderful. That is wonderful. Well, I have so many questions regarding everything you just said, but the one I want to back way up to was Toronto the Good. That really stuck out with me when I was reading your book because I've never heard a city called that. It sounds like a person. We were called that. I say we. I, I haven't lived in Toronto for a few years, but Toronto was called that basically because it was run by a group called the Orange Men, which came from a battle in 1690 with William the Orange, and, and it was about the Protestants being 
it's all about history that way. But the Protestants in Toronto ran it. They ran the police and the politics and basically everything was run by them. And they had such strict rules. It was, which I'm sure is where all the, the good thing came from. For example, they padlocked swing sets on Sundays. Um, they even papered over storefronts. There were the big Eaton's windows that were papered over so that you could not window shop on a Sunday. That would be wrong. So the reputation of being good and clean and proper all came from, from that. And so Toronto, the good it was, but it was hardly good at that time with everything happening within it. I just thought that was so funny because I've truly never heard a city called the good or the bad or whatever the title is. I've always heard it assigned to people. So I just thought that was sort of interesting. I was fascinated to learn about the Canadian troops that were sent there. And I guess they weren't even really troops because they were soldiers, but they weren't trained. And I thought that was fascinating. That's right. They were on garrison duty. They were called Sea Force. They were made up of two different units. One was called the Winnipeg Grenadiers from Winnipeg, Manitoba. And the other was the Royal Rifles, which were basically made up of Quebec and New Brunswick. And they were all put together and they were just from, they were used to guarding things and garrison duty does parades, they do awards, they do the the official stuff, but they don't go into combat. And as much as some of these men didn't like that, they wanted to go to war. Max was Jewish and he wanted to get over there and fight the fight, but this is where they were assigned and they did not have any training at all. And to be to be called unfit for duty before they went to Hong Kong, it just shows you, you know, that nobody was planning. And I was amazed that there were groups that were attaching themselves to the swastika and, you know, calling themselves Nazi groups or whatever in Toronto. Like I was unaware of that. And I think there was some of that in the U.S. too. And I think some of those stories recently have come out a little bit more, but you just don't usually hear about that. No. And the swastika clubs in Toronto, they were actually, they had 4,000 names, which is really substantial. There were different clubs around Toronto, but overall there were 4,000 of them. Interestingly, they denied being Nazi groups, although they, they would do the Hitler salute and they would yell Sieg Heil and they would do all the things, but they said, no, they were just interested in keeping Toronto clean. And good. <laughs> yeah. And their opinion clean was, you know, there were no Jewish people around. So it was very, it got very, very heated for sure. I'm sure. And then that's interesting that Canada absolved Japan from any guilt or compensation for those poor souls. That doesn't seem right either. Oh, I I find it disgusting that that happened. I think it probably had to do with commerce. Canada's always so quiet up here and we didn't want to disturb anything going on there. But when you think about what the men came back to, over in POW camps, they don't talk about this much either. They don't talk about the Japanese POW camps much at all, really. But if a POW was stuck in a German camp, if an allied POW was in one, there was about a 4% chance that they would die while they were there. If they were in a Japanese POW camp, there was between a 27 and 36% chance that they would die. So there were so many things wrong with that. And when the men came back, there were about 1,450 of them that actually survived. And they came back and I read that 87 of them came home blind from starvation. They were riddled with tropical parasites. Just everything was wrong with them and they were never given anything. They they tried to get some kind of compensation. It didn't come until uh, 1998. They were finally given, the surviving POWs or widows were given some money. But basically, I mean, 1998, that's that's crazy to wait that long. That is crazy. 
You have a photo at the end of your book in the author's note where you talk about some of the facts that you just mentioned, where you show some of the men when they were being rescued and how absolutely emaciated they looked. It's something that you would associate with the death camps, basically. These men were, without the Geneva Convention, there was nothing to protect them. And they did, they were skeletal. Some of them were well under 100 pounds. When they were discovered by the American troops that were flying overhead and they would drop the huge oil drums on them filled with food, the men actually gained, they say, about a pound a day. And it took over a month for them to get home and to to be taken out of these remote camps. So some of them, by the time they got home, were uh, they'd gained 40 pounds or so. And maybe the doctors didn't see anything wrong with them by then, but there was a lot of damage done. Most of them died before the age of 50. And you mentioned that about the digestive issues too, because I know that's a chronic problem for anybody who's a hostage or in a POW camp or concentration camp, you know, whatever form of that kind of captivity you're in where you're starved for such a long period of time that sometimes people can't really ever go back to eating regularly or not having just terrible, terrible digestive problems. Exactly. And and other problems too, like they would, their bones and their their feet and they were in their dental, everything was just destroyed. There were, there were too many things that were done to them. There was no way that they should have been forgotten. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad you're telling their story now. Mm-hmm, me too. What surprised you the most about writing the book? I think that, well, it was both stories. I never planned to actually write the Hong Kong story until I accidentally stumbled onto it. My plan was to write about the Christie Pitts riot in 1933. And that surprised me in itself the ferocity of it and the ferocity of the uh, anti-Semitism because I never could have pictured my old hometown being that way. And so that that whole thing was a surprise. But then getting into the Battle of Hong Kong, I didn't know any any of it. And I guess not knowing was the biggest surprise, right? We, sh- we should know. And so when I discovered they were even there, they were even sent down to Hong Kong unprepared, I think that was probably it for me. And And it's when I come across things like that, that I know the story has to be written. That's just, it's like that. Some people ask me, when was your aha moment? Well, I had a few during this book and that was one of them. To me, that's the beauty of historical fiction is that you can tell a very compelling tale, but also bring in facts about events like this that have been forgotten. And I think you're going to reach more people than you would if you were just writing a nonfiction book about it. I think that the responsibility um, with historical fiction is huge. I think that, uh, well, I'm not a historian. I basically slept through history class. <laughs> and I think that a lot of people up here did when I asked some of my other friends, did you know about this and this and this? And they, they just sort of shrug it off. But I think when you get reading historical fiction, that's when the author can start to personalize all these stories and make it an emotional attachment. And once you're attached to something emotionally, it's much harder to forget. So what I say is that it's our job to teach the mind while also touching the heart at the same time. And my really terrible analogy is that if you see a car crash, you're going to remember it for a couple of days. But if you know somebody that was in that car crash, you're never going to forget it. So I think our job as historical fiction authors is to make you care so much about the characters and their situations that you'll never forget these stories in in history. My last novel was called The Forgotten Home Child, and it told the story of Canada's British home children, which was, I mean, when when you hear it, you will be stunned. When I was in history class, I remember hearing about battles, the Plains of Abraham, the War of 1812, but what I never heard about 
was 120,000 destitute children sent from England to Canada to work as indentured servants. And that's what the British home children were. So that's another part of history that needed to be known. And the only way to do that was to build the personalities of the characters so much that you can't put it down and you'll never forget the history. When did that happen? What years? The British home children were sent here between 1869 and 1949. There were some apparently even sent in the 70s, but in smaller numbers. But yeah, it was it was well over 120,000 kids that were that were sent by different philanthropic organizations who said that they meant to help the children. They they meant to give them education and food and clothing when they were they were basically living in the streets of London most of them and living miserable lives. So it was supposed to be very helpful to them, but it ended up that most of the children, approximately 75% of the children were mistreated, they were neglected, they were abused, they were even killed. It's a huge story. And the, the interesting thing about that story is that the children, after everything that happened to them, they really didn't want to tell people who they were. And a lot of them made up stories. And as a result, we didn't know much about this history until recently, when everyone started learning about genealogy. And they've determined that approximately 12% of Canada's population today is descended from these children, which is over 4 million people, and most of them have no idea. That is amazing. I have never heard about that story either. It reminds me a tiny bit of that book Lisa Wingate wrote, and I'm trying to think of the name, but it's about that Memphis orphanage. Sold on a Tuesday. No, um, but that is another one. But it's the woman who ran that orphanage in oh. in Memphis, and she stole children out of their home, and then they would get adopted, and people would not talk about being adopted, so no one knew again until genealogy. That was before we were yours. Yes, exactly. So it's just interesting because I think people in earlier generations weren't as accustomed to talking about some of these things either, either adoption or being taken in as an indentured servant or whatever it is. People just weren't as likely to talk about those things as we are now. I think there's a deep sense of shame back then. And when you think about people overall back then, not too many people talked about their emotions, you know? Right, right. Um, so male or female, they didn't really express how they were feeling. And, but all the shame that they would have carried with them, was uh, that's why we don't know most of these stories. Even the POWs that I wrote about in Letters Across the Sea, most of them didn't ever talk about it again to people. Which I think is a very common response to World War II. I think you hear so many people saying that a lot of those soldiers just didn't want to talk about it. And it wasn't known like it is now that it's better to talk about it and try to get some of that out. And instead, they just tried to, you know, forget it. Exactly. And it ends up with so much post-traumatic stress. We know a lot better now. And boy, I wish we could go back in time and help heal some of them now. I agree. Well, talking about this book and your prior book, one of my questions for you was, do you have a favorite of the books you've written? I, you know what? Every time I write a book, it becomes my favorite. The first one I wrote was in 2015 called Tides of Honor, which was about the Halifax explosion and uh, a little bit of, war, of World War One here along the eastern shore of Nova Scotia. And that was my favorite for a very long time. And then in 2020, The Forgotten Home Child came out. And that one is never going to leave me. That's a, a very emotional, personal story um, after everything I've done with that book. But now it's letters across the sea. I really, I get so close to the stories and I get so close to the characters. They're right with me the whole time. So I would say I just keep switching around. It'd kind of be like asking, which is your favorite child, right? And that's too difficult to say. <laughs> 
I'm in the process of reading the nonfiction book right now called The Great Halifax Explosion. Ah, well, if you ever need any more information, I am full of it. (laughs) Well, it sounds really interesting, and I'm hoping we're going to visit Halifax this summer, so I need to get through that so that I'll be ready to go and, and visit everything there related to it. What about a favorite character? Have any of the characters you've written in any of your books just really stayed with you, stuck out as, I just really bonded with this character, I just really loved this character? Yeah, and I would say it's the same three books that I talked about. For some weird reason, I really identify more or I connect more with the male characters. And I can always see them first and I can always see them most clearly, which is funny because all my books are written in dual. Every other chapter alternates between the male and female perspective. So for some reason, I don't know why, but it's always the male. And Danny Baker was my first character. Danny was from Tides of Honor. And he has stuck with me the whole time. I miss him very much. I missed him enough that I wrote a sequel to that story. Then there was Jack in The Forgotten Home Child. And I think maybe Jack, well, Jack would be maybe tied for first place with Max from Letters Across the Sea. So those are my three favorite books, I suppose. And so my three favorite male characters are in there. Well, that lines up exactly then. Right. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you have read recently that you really liked. Sure. I'm reading all historical fiction all the time, pretty much. I'm working on Kate Quinn's Rose Code right now, which was fantastic. All Everything she writes is fantastic. Pam Jenoff's new book, The Woman with the Blue Star, just came out a couple of days ago. And I have yet to go curbside pick up that one for me. Oh, I read one. I read an advanced copy of something that will be out in August that I'm going to recommend highly to you by A.J. Pierce. She wrote Dear Mrs. Bird a few years I ago. I love Dear Mrs. Bird, and I'm so excited for the new one. You've read it? Oh, I read it, and it's yours cheerfully. And it, oh, it's every bit as good or better. I just love, I love every, everything that she writes. She's so sweet. Well, that's good to know because I absolutely loved that book, and I recommended it to everybody. Every time I did any kind of book talk, it was on my list. And, you know, sometimes when you have a follow-up, the next book after you've loved a book like that, I'm like, oh, I hope I'm going to like it as much. So that's great to hear that it's just as good or if not better. It is. It is. Good. Well, those are so many great recommendations. I actually interviewed Kate Quinn about The Rose Code, and I really loved that book. She really brought Bletchley Park to life. Yes, she definitely did. She's, she's got a gift. She does. But so do you. Like, I love hearing all these Canadian stories. And as you mentioned, it's not something you read about nearly as often. And I always gravitate toward those types of stories and books that tell stories that I'm not even familiar with at all. Yeah. And to me, I just, I didn't understand why I couldn't find those books on the shelves. And I feel incredibly honored to be able to do it because nobody else is doing it. And so I can find that little niche and keep, keep writing in that area. And I love doing it. And I'm really proud to do it too. Well, that's fabulous. And it sounds like you'll have many more stories to tell that way. Mm-hmm, I do. I have a couple a couple on the go right now and a couple more in my head. So oh, good. always writing. Genevieve, thank you so much for joining me on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I really enjoyed speaking with you. So nice to meet you, Cindy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Genevieve's book can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. 
My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes.